Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke as we continue in our Lucan sermon series for Life in the Kingdom. Now the portion we didn't read, and Luke chapter 6 verses 12 through 16, Jesus has just chosen his 12 disciples or called apostles. And now having chosen these disciples, what I want you to hear today is these are the first words of instruction from the rabbi to his students, to his disciples. He calls the 12 and they're gathered around and then others who want to be disciples are gathered around and some just curious are gathered around. There's crowds gathered around, but having chosen the 12, these are the very first words of our Lord to his disciples. So what does it mean to be a disciple? To be a follower of the rabbi named Jesus. For the first time in Luke, we discover what it really means to say yes to the lordship of Jesus. He's coming down from the mountain. He prays in the selection process of his disciples. He comes to a place of prayer and retreat. He stops at a level place there on the plain. And he begins to teach his 12 disciples, the multitudes and the curious all at the same time. The throngs have gathered around because of the power from his healing hand. Then look at verse 19. And all the multitude were trying to touch him for power was coming from him and healing them all. It's almost a mystical message here. Power is leaving Jesus as he is healing the sick. And then he begins, like our young men did, with the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude comes from Latin, but that really goes back to the Greek, and the word is makario. Makario, blessed is the word. It initially was a word for worldly well-being. Makario, blessed are you. It means you are blessed, or you are fortunate, or you are happy. But all of a sudden, Jesus takes this word for blessed or, or happy, and he looks through the lens of the kingdom. And according to the kingdom of God, we're going to learn this morning, one's happiness has nothing to do with one's external circumstances and everything to do with one's internal allegiance. This first moment of instruction, Jesus challenges the notion that happiness is based upon our accomplishments or our accumulations. Well, notice the first beatitude there in verse 20, as Sarah read it to us. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew adds a little bit to this. If you remember Matthew's version, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, Luke just identifies the blessed as the poor. Matthew perhaps catches what it means to be poor because with poverty comes humility and desperation that makes one open to the kingdom of God. So blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We shouldn't be surprised, however, that Luke simply says poor. You remember back in Luke chapter 4, that very first sermon of Jesus in his own synagogue in Nazareth, you remember where he announced, I have come to preach good news 
to the poor. So here in Luke, blessed are the poor. Sometimes a momentary happiness and self-assured arrogance that accompany material prosperity blind the wealthy's, the wealthy's ability to seem beyond the present world to another kingdom and another king. Now, it's not that poverty is the blessed state, but rather the accompanying vulnerability that comes with poverty. It means if we're impoverished, we have open hearts and we have hope. The poor have hope for another king and another kingdom because they're not faring too well with this king and this kingdom. Unlike their rich neighbors, the poor understand what it means to be utterly dependent upon the daily provision of God. Second beatitude in verse 21. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, Matthew's version's a little different. Now, Jesus probably preached this sermon on different occasions to different crowds. And when Matthew heard it, it was, blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But here in Luke, it's just those who are hungry and you're hungry right now. It's not a different state than being poor, but a, another way to describe the same crowd. Blessed are you who are poor or blessed are those who are hungry right now. Those listening to the words of Jesus need to be satisfied. Notice what he says that God will do for them. They will be satisfied. The word there means they will be filled, that God will fill them. The Old Testament is full of that imagery of the great future banquet of God where the hungry are fed. Psalm 107, Isaiah 55, and in Luke's gospel in just a little bit in chapter 9, We'll have a foretaste of God's filling the hungry with the feeding of the 5,000 when they all get to eat all they desire and there are leftovers from the filling of the hungry. Well, look at the third beatitude, 21b. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. The recipient of God's blessing are those who are suffering right now in the present. Those who are weeping will eventually find laughter. The laughter that comes, the arrival of the kingdom of God. For ancient Israel, weeping was associated with being in exile, being away from their land. Ecclesiastes 3, 4 contrasts weeping and laughing as opposites. Blessed are those who weep now, for on the other side you will have laughter, and laughter will bring you joy, he says. Well, there's beatitude number four. Look at it in verse 22 and 23. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you, Spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Now Matthew adds the word falsely. Those are hated or, or blasphemed falsely. There's no legitimate cause for those disciples to be abused. But they will be awarded with the arrival of the kingdom of God. Isaiah 66, 5 says, those who hate you and exclude you for my name's sake. 
blessedness of hate and defamation are not found in the persecution or the harsh words themselves. Rather that those who are hated and those who are reviled and those who are abused are identified with the Son of Man. How was Jesus treated? Jesus was hated. Jesus was reviled. Jesus was ostracized, nailed to a cross. Blessed you who are persecuted, he's saying, because you are experiencing what the Son of Man will be experiencing. You will be like your Christ. Notice what he says for your name, verse 22. Now, this is probably not an individual name like the Joneses, the Smiths, or the McCoys. Rather, it's the Christian name. You see, in the first century, the name Christian was a negative name to use to belittle those who belong to the Christ. A Christ man, a Christ woman, a Christian, those who belittle the name of following Christ. If you're ridiculed, if you're persecuted, jump for joy, he says, because you'll have a great reward in heaven. What follows in verses 24 and 26 are the woes. The woes parallel the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, he says, but the woe is, woe to you who are rich. Blessed are you who hunger now, but woe to you who are well fed now. Blessed are you who are weeping now. Woe to you who are laughing now. Blessed are you when men hate you and cast insults at you and spurn your name. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Good news of the gospel for the poor can mean bad news for the rich. To lift up the poor is to punish those possessing the power, those who are pulling them down and persecuting them. You see, the rich find themselves in a precarious predicament because their love of the things of this world, their love for the here and now becomes a great stumbling block for their interest into the kingdom of God. Jesus is going to make clear in, in Luke 16, you cannot serve both God on the one hand and money or mammon on the other hand. Combined together. One of the biggest themes of the New Testament is this. I, I used to play the game of listing the top 10 things the New Testament says. Well, this is a top 10. It might not be on your list, but it's certainly on the list of the gospel writers. What we call the great reversal. The great reversal is a top 10 theme of the New Testament. In God's future, and his kingdom, the poor inherit the ultimate riches of the kingdom and the rich having sold out to the present comforts of this world, well, they miss out. Describing the recipients of the woes as rich and full and content and extolled, Luke is using separate adjectives to describe the same group. The very things that appear to be advantages in this world, in the here and now, well, with a great reversal, but they become a disadvantage. You see, the rich live under the awful burden of their riches. When the sixth Duke of Westminster realized at age 16 he was going to inherit his family's fortune, he dreaded it. Man, what a responsibility. The knowledge that he hadn't earned it, the isolation that comes with it, 
Following his death in August of 2016, he did just what his father did to him. He placed all those riches, $13 billion on his son, Hugh Grosvenor, age 25 at the time. On the one hand, he's one of the richest men in the world. On the other hand, his money had made his father miserable. His father had once said, if I had been given a choice, I'd rather not been born wealthy. The burden of riches can be so heavy that Thayer Willis runs a counseling business to help the rich deal with the psychological challenges of their wealth. Each generation of a wealthy family becomes another chapter in the family's narrative of managing the money and passing it on to the next generation. The biggest question, Jesus says, for the rich is this, do you own the money or does the money own you? It's okay if you own the money. But if the money owns you, then you find yourself left out of the kingdom of God because you cannot see a new king and a new kingdom because you're so pleased with the present world and the present riches. Perhaps the most curious of all the woes is woe to those that men speak well of. You see, the reality is this. When we receive and attract the flattery of men, we miss being able to praise God. When we focus on how great we are and others tell us how good and wonderful we are, we miss the ability to send the praises to God. Woe to you when all men speak well of you because you miss out on the ability to send praises God's way. In fact, he reminds them the false prophets enjoyed great popularity because they never preached a challenging message. They tickled the ears of the congregation. Verse 27 through 35. I say we have the hardest command that Jesus ever gives. But I say to you, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Verse 28. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Just as you want people to treat you, treat them the same way. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even the sinners do the same. You see the message here. What is the hardest thing that Jesus ever asked of any of his disciples. Well, you can make the list in your mind. He does tell, not everyone, but he does tell the rich young ruler, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. That's a hard thing for Jesus to ask. Jesus says to all of us, if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or or Jesus says, he who wants to be first needs to be last needs to be servant of all. Whoever wishes to save his life must be willing to lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Now that's a big ask. Or or he says to Peter, come on, join me walking on the water. Now that's a big ask, to be sure, on the Sea of Galilee. Despite all the impossibility, the difficulty, the apparent impossibility of those commands, I think the hardest thing Jesus ever says is love your enemies. 
Have you ever tried to love your enemy? Do you know how hard that is? In case you miss the example, he says, if they slap one cheek, turn and give them the other cheek. If they sneak off of your coat, then go ahead and give them your shirt too. You see? He says in verse 32, if you love only those who love you, what good is that? Even the world does that. If you give only to those who can give back to you, what good is that? Well, sinners do that. But how about you loving those who don't love you? Praying for those who persecute you. How hard is that? Maybe it's a father who was never really a father to you. He belittled you and bragged on your sister. Maybe that's become your enemy, your father. Maybe it's a person at work who lied about you and took credit for all that you had done, which eventually led to your dismissal. And Jesus wants you to pray for her. Maybe that person who's your enemy is your ex-husband or your ex-wife, or maybe it's the in-law who tries to dominate your life and the life of your family. If we're going to be the children of God, we have to love the one who is most unlovable in her own life. If you're easy to love, well, even a sinner can love those who are easy to love. But if we're going to love like God loves, we have to love those who are difficult to love. I'm difficult to love. I'm glad God loves me. You're difficult to love sometimes. I'm glad God loves you. I can't believe he did it. It is absolutely unbelievable. The Reverend Walter Everett put into practice as good as I've ever seen what it means to love your enemy. He conducted the wedding of the man who murdered his son. He conducted the wedding celebration of the man who murdered his son. In fact, the guy got out of jail to get married because Everett showed up and testified on his son's murderer's behalf at the parole board. The pastor said, Reverend Everett said he had seen people who had experienced murder in their family. And he said afterwards they were filled with bitterness and hatred. Their life was consumed with it. And I wasn't going to let my life be like that. So he conducted the wedding of his son's murderer at the Golden Hill United Methodist Church in Bridgeport. The murderer, Carlucci, says, I don't understand how he loves me or why he loves me. He says, I've got a 13-year-old daughter, and if somebody hurt my daughter, I would hurt them back. About one month into his sentence in jail, he got a letter from the Reverend Walter Everett, and they started pen-palling back and forth. And then after a few months of that, Everett actually showed up to visit with Carlucci, they talked, and after they talked for a while, when Reverend Everett got up to leave, he said it was just instinctual. We embraced and we cried. In fact, Carlucci said, before I even asked my future wife, when I got out to, to marry me, I asked Reverend Everett if he would do me the privilege of presiding over my wedding. And then he said, that pastor is my best friend. Wow. Love your 
enemies. We ourselves were one time enemies with God. And God loved us while we were his enemies. And he sent his son to die for us while we were his enemy. Now notice he defines it as by doing good, verse 35. You might not can control your inner feelings, but you can control your outer actions. You see, this is not love necessarily just of the heart. It is love of the hands and of the feet. In fact, in the Old Testament, we're told if our enemy's wandering donkey comes across our property, we got to take him his donkey back. If our enemy is needing of food and drink, we are to give him food and drink, Proverbs 25, 21. If anyone steals your outer cloak, give him your shirt as well. That way you change his act of violence into your act of charity. And when we only love those who are lovable and those who can love us back, we're loving like the world. Even sinners love that way. But the Reverend Walter Everett could only love the man who murdered his son because he had the grace of Christ within him. Love your enemies. You see, when we think about the hardest thing Jesus asked, it's a triangular relationship. What we remember is not only do we have a relationship with our enemies, but we have a relationship with God who loves our enemies. And therefore, every relationship we have is a triangle. And God who loved us while we were his enemies is in that triangle. It's a hard thing. Love your enemies. Verses 36 through 38, he talks about the pardon and how we're to forgive those around us. Be merciful just like your father's merciful. Do not judge, you will not be judged. And do not condemn, you will not be condemned. Pardon and you will be pardoned. Given, it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, he's not calling upon us to suspend our moral judgment. We need to see evil and call evil, evil. But what he is saying to us, the way that you want God to forgive you, you demonstrate that by the way you forgive others. When you're measuring the grain, if you're giving a full measure, you press down and then you shake it to get all the space filled. And and when you do so, it starts running over as your mercy for others runs over like a full measure of grain. In the same way you measure it out to those who need your forgiveness, God will measure it out to you. So let me ask you, if God forgives you, The way you forgive those in your life that need forgiveness, how much forgiveness is he going to give you? If he pardons you by the way that you pardon, then how much pardoning are you going to get? In the same way, notice the end of verse 38. For by your standard of measure, God will measure it to you in return. Verse 39, he speaks of the blind. The blind are the Pharisees who cannot see Jesus for who he really is. If the blind lead the blind, they fall into a ditch, he tells us. And then 41 through 42, the wooden beam. It's kind of a cartoon image. You've got a guy with a, a log in his own eye, and he's trying to get the corneal foreign body out of his friend right over there, just trying to pick out that little piece, that little sawdust in his eye. Isn't it amazing? I can walk around with a two by four in my eye 
and not see it. But you get a little speck in your eye and I can detect it pretty quick, right? Why is it so easy to see the flaws of our family and friends while we miss the very things in our life that are destructive? You see, the reality is mental health professionals tell us that I see all the flaws in you that I really don't like me, but are not willing to locate them in me. And so I locate them in you. It's a lot more fun that way. And you can't see the flaws in your own life, and so you locate them in me because it's easier that way. As the younger generation would say, Jesus is saying, most of all, worry about yourself. Worry about yourself rather than worrying about your neighbor. And then he tells us in 43 through 45 that out of our inner existence will come the fruit which we bear. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, verse 43. Nor on the other hand is there a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of the good treasure, his heart brings forth what is good. And evil men out of the evil treasure bring forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Our inner existence. We bear the sort of fruit who declares who we are in our life. Are we obedient to the word of God? So Jesus picks the 12 disciples, comes down from the mountain, gathers there in a flat area. And he begins for the very first time to instruct his disciples. And he declares the great reversal of the economy of God. Those who are have-nots in this world will be the haves and the next. The kingdom, plenty, and laughter, and heavenly reward are theirs. And those who are so invested in this world, those who only think about the riches of today, have failed to long for a new kingdom or recognize a new king when he arrives. Therefore, they are turned upside down in the next world, finding themselves missing Messiah. Unlike sinners, the followers of Jesus, he says, must love their enemies, bless those who curse him. Mercy and grace, moreover, will be measured out to the disciples of Jesus in the same way they measure it out to those around them. Above all else, he says, if you're a fig tree, you're going to produce figs because your inner essence Good or bad, figs or thorns, determined by who you are in the kingdom of God. What do we receive today? Is God blessing you with the Beatitudes or is God warning you this morning with the woes? Let those who have ears to hear Hear the very first words of Jesus to his disciples.
Let us pray. Dear God, everybody in this room, we are the rich people. I'm not preaching to a handful. I'm preaching to everybody in the Western world. We get to liking this kingdom so much, we're not really longing for another one. And, and we'll miss the king and the kingdom if we live like that. And God, I know how hard it is to love our enemies, those who do us wrong and those who curse us and those who tear us down. But then I look to the cross and I see a crucified Christ say to the very ones who drove the nails, Father, forgive them. Praying for his enemies. Doing what he asked us to do. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, sometimes we can be stingy with grace and mercy and forgiveness to those in our life who wrong us. And we hear the word that by the way we measure it out will be the way we receive it. May we hear the warning of our Lord. And God, may we all realize afresh in you that once we become a follower of Jesus, there's a radical demand on our life to be completely different than the world. We're to be the fruit trees bearing the fruit. Not the thistle or the thorns or the briar bush. Because not who we are. But because of the presence of your spirit in our life, we are different. We are called to love as Jesus loved, to give as Jesus gave, to bless as Jesus blessed. For we are the ones with eyes to see and ears to hear. There is another kingdom. It's not this one. And there is another king and his name is Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.